Corbett wins. This is a 9-9. Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, an online archive series showcasing the work of expert historians. I'm Vince Hunt, and I'll be hosting the series. If you like these shows, please share them with your friends and colleagues and rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps new listeners find us. Through global competitions like Football's World Cup, sport has the power to unite nations, to bring the world together around a single moment. But sport actually inflamed political tensions in Central America in the lead-up to the 1970 Mexico World Cup, rather than reducing them, according to recently declassified CIA files, leading to a short but vicious war between El Salvador and Honduras. The full details of this Cold War sports story have come to light now thanks to the Freedom of Information Act in the United States, which celebrates its 50th year of existence this year. Nate Jones is director of the Freedom of Information Act project for the National Security Archive in Washington. Nate, what do these documents tell us? They tell us that it certainly went to the president's desk, the football war, But it was a little bit buried every day. Uh, In all of these president's daily briefs that he's seen, uh, number one was always the Vietnam War. Number two was the Soviet Union's activities throughout the world. And then even though it was in the U.S.'s own hemisphere, its own neighborhood, the football war was number three. It also shows that the CIA appears not to have had the best intelligence on it. Compared to the other briefings about Vietnam, which were quite in-depth, it looks like the CIA was only really relying on news reports uh, from the area, and it looks like they didn't have anyone on the ground. World Cup matches mean a lot. What happened between El Salvador and Honduras? The war wasn't purely based on football. Uh, It was actually a war about overpopulation and lack of resources that coincided with the qualifiers. Um, So the situation, uh, generalizing, was that El Salvador uh, had a higher population than Honduras, and Honduras had more land. And eventually, over a long course, uh, citizens of El Salvador crossed this rather murky-defined border with Honduras and started taking up, essentially, open land. Then uh, Honduras had a policy to redistribute the land to Hondureños and began essentially igniting racial tension, trying to kick out the immigrants from this land. This coincided with three football matches, and actually three good football matches, uh, in 1969. So the first in Honduras, there was no scores until after 90 minutes. It went into overtime. Honduras won 1-0. The second in El Salvador, El Salvador won 3-0, and the Honduras' team actually had to be whisked away and hidden because the the tension was so much. Media on both countries ignited racial strife, um, replayed videos of mobs attacking each other, uh, and things inflamed. Finally, the last game was played in Mexico City, and El Salvador eventually won in overtime. After the war, the two broke off diplomatic relations from each other, and about a fortnight later, the actual war started. Inflamed, but perhaps not caused by, but inflamed very much by the media and tensions and anger over the the competition. At first, El Salvador's army 
invaded into Honduras, uh, justified as protecting Salvadoreños in Honduras, and made quick gains. I think the, the intelligence reports say overtook nine cities. Um, some commentators called it um, the Israel of Latin America due to its small size. But eventually, uh, Honduras started attacking through the air and essentially bombed El Salvador's fuel ports. And then after just a few days, uh, the war bogged down into a stalemate. And then eventually, the OAS, the Organi- Organization of American States, brokered a ceasefire that finally ended the war after 100 hours. Was this a Cold War struggle? And who was backing who? Both of these countries were firmly under the control of, under the influence of the U.S. government. Um, They're both Cold War allies. Uh, If we really want to generalize, we could say that they were a bit akin to two Eastern European countries. So it's a bit strange that they fought each other. Both were heavily influenced by U.S. business interests, including United Fruit. And at this time, later on is a different story, but at this time, um, according to the intelligence prognosticators, there was little risk of either turning into Cuba. Um, both were capitalist, pro-American countries. And what was the long-term impact of this incident on relations between the two countries and perhaps even within the two countries? One of the impacts of the football war was the military leaderships that led both countries got stronger and were emboldened. And this eventually led to a swing the other direction, first in El Salvador, um, which the history that some people call uh, Latin America's Vietnam, where the U.S. suppressed a leftist insurgency that eventually won. Uh, And you can trace roots to uh, the leadership during the football war uh, that was emboldened by essentially being able to fight a war to a stalemate and essentially not even get a slap on the wrist by the USA. Looking at these papers now, what lessons are there for the U.S. regarding what happened later in Central America? Well, I think that it overlooked its backyard uh, while it was spending too much time dwelling upon the Cold War and the Soviet Union. As if you look at the intelligence reports, the football war is down at the bottom while concerns about the Soviet Union's coercion, so to speak, in other countries outranked it, where there is an actual live shooting war that took the lives of thousands of people right below our southern border. So these documents reveal a pretty serious situation on the ground in Central America. What kind of detail is reaching the president's desk? One of the juiciest nuggets that President Nixon would have heard um, was that the CIA agents listened and reported um, to the local radio, and one radio network in Honduras, uh, quote, Last night, exhorted civilians in the Western Highway area to grab machetes or other weapons and move to the front to assist the army. So even though this is low on his list of things, there is vicious fighting going on. And it did make it to the president's desk eventually, though it was a little bit buried. Instead of making sure that our business interests were protected, it probably would have been better to ensure that the problems of overpopulation ill-defined borders and stumbling into war rather than diplomacy, especially inflamed just by a football match, were more focused upon than maybe our focus elsewhere on the world even. The Cold War was characterized by secrecy, while the Freedom of Information Act was diametrically opposed to this. Secrecy and freedom of information are uneasy bedfellows, aren't they? How did the act come into being? Why? 
And how did the government respond? Looking broadly, uh, one of the advantages and one of the reasons that the United States and the West won the Cold War was because they had the moral high ground on freedom of press and journalism. And it was, as we saw during the football war, sometimes it inflamed tensions, but overall it was an extremely powerful tool um, that won the war. And one of the victories of Western journalists was passing this law. President Johnson did not want to sign the law. He threatened a pocket veto, uh, but the press told them that there would be an outcry and told him in no uncertain terms that the public would back the press and access to information in passing this law. And he eventually, according to his press secretary, Bill Moyers, signed it kicking and screaming. Some funny things of what were secret before the law was passed. None of peanut butter that the armed forces used was classified as a secret. The justification saying that they could extrapolate, the Soviets could ex extrapolate through peanut butter just how many men and women or men were in the armed forces. A 20-year-old report about shark attacks on shipwrecked sailors was a state secret. Um, and a description of modern applications of the bow and arrow. So essentially, the press started squawking to the public, do you have a right to know these things and many more or not? And the public, the American public said, yes, we do passed the law, and we passed essentially the first Freedom of Information Act um, after Sweden and Finland, and Sweden was in the 1700s. What secrets does America want to hang on to even now? Right now, the stuff that is most secret and would be most beneficial to the public um, is the CIA has a blanket exemption on all operational files. They think that means all files about anything they've ever done. So we have a pretty good record about what presidents have done. We have a very good record about what the military has done. We have a good record what di diplomats have done. But in the Cold War, what the CIA did is still largely unavailable to the public. Uh, recently, they declassified the covert operations the CIA was taking in, in Angola. Um, but that's not the only place they were taking covert operations. As early as I know we're trying to move forward, but... Uh, there's a, a history of the CIA's activities in Iran in 1953 during the coup that uh, from John Kerry on high uh, is forbidding the State Department from releasing. It's already written. So the biggest challenge for historians is getting at the history of the CIA's Cold War activities. And that prompts mention of another almost disaster, the exercise Able Archer. And you've become an expert on this. Yeah, it's actually the, the whole reason I got into the Freedom of Information Act in the first place is um, a while back I was conducting research on it and went to the archives and they said, oh, that's classified, you can't read that, and uh, kind of laughed at me. And I said, well, is there a way, to, is there a mechanism to get it declassified? And they laughed and said, oh, no, you'll never do that. So started filing all those FOIA requests and years, decades later, um, I've finally gotten a lot of the documents declassified about um, this 1983 Able Archer nuclear war scare, which essentially um, was a NATO exercise in 1983 during bad tensions after the boycott of the Moscow Olympics. Reagan had called um, the Soviet Union the evil empire. Both sides had new dangerous nuclear weapons that could hit the other in his few as 12 minutes. Um, and NATO conducted, to that time, uh, 
one of, if not the most realistic nuclear attack exercise um, ever. The Soviets thought it could potentially be a real attack. They readied their nukes. Um, Intelligence channels started squawking. Um, There was a double agent that warned the West that the Soviets were scared and got all the way up to Reagan, who called it really scary. Um, And eventually, cooler heads prevailed. But instead of learning lessons from this one, like we learned, hopefully learned, from the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, it was essentially stamped classified. uh, and, And the public doesn't know how close, really, we came to nuclear war here again. I put the best of these documents together, introduced them, gave a good chronology uh, so that now finally uh, the public can read these documents that were once secret and learn from themselves uh, how dangerous and how close the world came to nuclear war. And it's uh, called Able Archer 83, the secret history of the NATO exercise that nearly triggered nuclear war from the new press. It's on Amazon. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Dale.